Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. This morning, for the next two hours, we're pleased to share with you the talks from the 2021 Columbus Catholic Men's Conference. In this first hour, we'll hear from Chris Stefanik and Devin Schott. In the second hour, we'll have the second talk from Devin Schott, as well as talks from Father Donald Calloway and Bishop Robert J. Brennan. Right now, here's Chris Stefanik. Enjoy. My brothers and the Lord, welcome to the 24th Annual Men's Conference called to be saints. And I know some of you guys hear the word saint and you think, what is a saint? What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who doesn't cuss, who doesn't drink, who doesn't swear, who doesn't cheat on his wife. <laughs> so a saint is someone who really doesn't do those things. You know, guys, my toaster doesn't do those things. A saint is not defined by what he doesn't do. He's defined by who he is in Christ and who God is in him. You see, to be a saint is to be fully alive. Jesus did not just come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And St. Irenaeus said, the glory of God, I'm reading a beautiful quote, is, and it's one of my favorites, the glory of God is man fully alive. Are you fully alive in him? And the surest sign of God's presence, which is holiness, you see, it's not just your behaviors or lack of behaviors that makes you holy. It's the presence of God inside of you. And the surest sign of God's presence inside of a soul, residing in that soul, is joy. So I want to kick off this beautiful conference with you, my beautiful brothers in the Lord, by talking about the joy of God, the joy of the Lord that he came to give you. I mean, Jesus, he stated his mission. He said, I've told you these things. In other words, my whole body of teaching, all the things I'm telling you, is so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. You're looking for joy? God came to deliver. He came to deliver the joy that you're looking for. And joy, you might be thinking, joy isn't something I can have right now. The world's crazy. Have you read the news? Guys, joy is not something you get when the world is all copacetic and your life is perfect. Joy is not something you get as the fruit of a battle won. Joy is the strength that you need to enter the battle, the battle that is everyday life. Nehemiah was speaking to the people of God when they were in exile. And they were about to come home and rebuild their fallen city walls. And in the ancient world, fallen city walls were a big deal because those walls protected you from your neighbors who wanted to kill you. So when he was telling them to go home and rebuild their fallen city, he was calling them to battle. And many of them knew we might die because we have no protection right now. And in that context, he said the joy of the Lord must be your strength. Joy is not what you get when the battle's won. Joy is the strength to enter the battle in the first place. Do you feel like those city walls have fallen? Maybe your business is a mess, your family's a mess, maybe society, maybe the church is a mess. Brothers, I'm telling you right now, joy must be your strength to enter the battle that God is calling you to. Joy is strength. The devil knows that as much as God does. And that's why, if you pay attention, most of the spiritual battles you fight are over your joy. The devil does not want the people of God to be strong, to be strong to conquer sin, to be strong to rebuild their families, to be strong to rebuild their businesses, to be strong to enter and engage the, the, the spiritual culture wars that are going on all around us. And because the devil is constantly waging war on your joy, you have to do practical things to keep that joy so that you can enter the battle. I'm going to lay out five things right now, and they're all simple, but they're all powerful, and I want you to jot them down. Number one, check this out. Read my notes behind the camera here. 
1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What does God want me to do with my life? I'm tell- I just told you. He wants you to give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. <laughs> you know, guys, gratitude is so incredibly powerful. I just wrote a book on this called Living Joy, Nine Rules for a Joyful Life, and I was tempted to make the whole thing about gratitude because I was lost contemplating the power of this one rule for, for claiming the joy that God has, has commanded us to, the joy we need to live, the, 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 the rule we need to live in his joy, to live life to the full, to be fully alive. Listen, it's your brain's natural tendency to focus on things that will bring you down. And that's human nature. We evolved that way. I mean, look, the caveman who survived long enough to pass his genes on to you, his brain wasn't the kind that focused on all his blessings and just soaked in the beauty all around him and smelled the flowers. No, no, no. It was the kind that focused on all his problems. So your brain, like any other organ in your body, it didn't evolve to make you happy. It evolved to keep you alive. That's why after a hard day at work and someone cuts you off in traffic, you walk in the door and you're thinking about the hard things you had to experience at work and the one guy who cut you off in traffic. And frankly, the next day you're on the road, you're looking for that one guy, aren't you? Your brain fixates on what might hurt you. It's your brain's job. And that's natural. God is calling us to something higher. He's calling us to the supernatural. St. Paul writes about this from prison. You want to talk about having political problems in his era? Nero was in charge. Nero liked to take Christians, impale them, cover them in tar, and light them on fire to keep his palace warm. Okay, this is a time where where you had some serious political issues all around you. He's in prison under the domination of this guy. The people around him as he's in prison under house arrest might be his executioners. He doesn't know that. In this context... He writes to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. Have no anxiety at all, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Then the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. Rejoice is a command, even in the worst circumstances imaginable. And have no anxiety at all, in everything, by prayer and petition, what? With thanksgiving. God wants everything we do to be with thanksgiving. When we have that spirit of thanks, not just that we say thank you on occasion, but when we make a habit of fixating our minds, not on the things that will, might hurt us or the things that frustrate us, but a habit of our default being on the blessings of God and the things we're grateful for, then we rise above our circumstances and we can rejoice always. Rejoice always. I say it again, rejoice. And I know your problems are real. You might be thinking, Chris, I got I to focus on my problems. Sure. I'm not saying to bury your head in the sand. You do have to focus on your problems, but you don't have to fix your mind on them. Saints aren't saints because they fix their minds on the problems. They're saints because they fix their minds on things above, on the blessings of Almighty God. They're people of gratitude and praise. Anne Frank said this. She said, think of all the beauty still around you and be happy. (laughs) If Anne Frank can say that, you can, Christian man. Yes, your problems are real. The sun is also real. When you go for a walk outside, do you stare at the sun? If you do, it'll fry your retinas. You look at the beauty all around you, and you can find joy when you do that. You defend your joy by doing that. You also enjoy your life more, which, believe it or not, God wants for you. This is from Ecclesiastes. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, these are some of the harshest words I've ever read in Scripture, I say to you, a stillborn child is better off than he. It all comes without meaning. (laughs) Guys, you need to enjoy your blessings, honor God, 
by enjoying your blessings and you can't enjoy them without a grateful heart. I'm going to give you two ways to be grateful. One, when you wake up in the morning. The second you wake up, your brain starts to do its job. Jump into the problems of the day. That's why you wake up at 4 a.m. You can't fall back asleep. Because your mind is racing already, doing what it's supposed to do. What a beautiful brain. <laughs> but we have to direct our thoughts, don't we? To our blessings. So right then, before your eyes open, start to give thanks. That way, when you hit the floor, you're ready to bless people around you because you've soaked in the blessings of God rather than stewing in your problems. And number two, as a spiritual discipline, guys, these things I'm saying right now are very simple, but if you do them, I'm promising you it'll change your life. As a spiritual discipline, practice letting things that annoy you trigger you, not to cussing, not to giving a person the finger as they're driving past you because they cut you off. Don't ever raise one finger if you have a rosary dangling from your car window. Raise your hands in praise. Every time that you're aggravated, start thanking. I'm telling you guys, it's, I, do, I do this myself. It doesn't change your circumstances. It changes you utterly in the midst of your circumstances. So if you want to defend your joy so you can enter the battle of everyday life, one, you have to become a person of thanks by giving thanks in the morning, by giving thanks when you're uh, aggravated. Number two, this is the second rule for living in joy. You have to love yourself. Listen, nothing drains joy like self-loathing. You need to love yourself. Now, we constantly have a dialogue going on inside of our heads. We're constantly speaking words to ourselves. And the words that we speak to ourselves, we're often unconscious of. We go through life thinking without thinking about what we're thinking. All right? We need to become conscious of the fact that if there's a battle between heaven and hell, where's the front line? It's between your ears. And on one side of this battle, you have the accuser of our brothers. That's the word for the devil in the book of Revelations, and it's a perfect word. An accuser wants you bound in chains. He wants you to be miserable. And on the other side of this battle, you have the advocate. If you're in court and there's an accuser, there's also an advocate. The person who wants to see you set free. Guys... You need to pick sides in this battle. You need to pick sides. Again, we often go through life thinking without thinking about what we're thinking. And we speak words to ourselves that come from all sorts of unintended places in our lives. You know, maybe you go through life speaking words to yourself that arise from a tragedy you've lived through. So you're convinced that you're abandoned by God or condemned or cursed. Maybe you go through life speaking words to yourself that arise from an abusive situation you've lived through. So you're convinced that you're violated or dirty or weak. And these are the kinds of words that shape your life. Maybe you go through life speaking words to yourself that arise from a lack of positive affirmation that was supposed to be there from people who were supposed to love you better than they did. So I, I mean, I've met many men who go through life and it looks like they're fighting for the approval of someone who's not even there. But what are they fighting? What are they fighting for? That voice in their head that they're not even aware is constantly ripping them down saying you're not enough. You'll never measure up. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You'll never be enough. Guys, I don't care all that much where your words have come from in the past. Here's what I care a lot about. If you want to live a joyful life, you wake up to the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on, that the battle has so much to do with your thinking about yourself, and that you need to pick sides, take this script out of the devil's hands, take the pen out of his hands, give it back to Almighty God. I know what God's word says about you, brothers. You are blessed. You are beautiful. You are enough. Almighty God found you worth dying for. You are a child of God. You need to align how you talk to yourself, how you feel about yourself, with what he reveals about you from the cross.
St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Every time a lie starts rising up in your head, and you know it's there by how you feel in your gut. If you feel ripped down, joyless, if your circumstances are telling you, I'm abandoned by God, or I'm nothing, or I'll never measure up, lean into the battle, look in the mirror, and say, you are a king. Or whatever it is you need to hear the most. If you're not the one preaching the truth to yourself that you need to hear the most, you're going through life way too needy. You're waiting for your wife, for your kids, for your accomplishments at work to tell you who you are. You need to tell yourself who you are. The preaching ministry of the church doesn't exist so you can watch videos. The preaching ministry of the church exists so you will start preaching truth to yourself. If you want a joyful life, discipline your mind and become a man of thanks. If you want a joyful life, discipline your mind and start loving yourself. If you want a joyful life, number three, you need to live a friendship-rich life. This is not easy because people are annoying. <laughs> and so are you, all right? Listen, there's a Harvard study done, an unprecedented longitudinal study over the course of 80 years. This is one of the longest studies ever done. They were tracking people from their childhood into their old age to find out which factors set them up for success, for longevity, for health and happiness when they were old. And they were looking for everything from the shape of the skull to their, to their cholesterol, to everything. You know what they found more than anything else? Friends. They actually have found in recent years, it is healthier for you to smoke 15 cigarettes a day than to be lonely. Wow. Loneliness is quite literally toxic. They found it's healthier for you to have high cholesterol than to be lonely. Brothers, this whole friendship thing is necessary for your physical health and obviously necessary for your spiritual health. Sequoias, biggest trees in the world. They blow my mind. I, I, I encourage you to, to Google the General Sherman tree. 275 feet in the air. It's good bark, three feet thick, fire resistant. It's, it's about 3,000 years old. These trees are mind-blowing. The General Sherman's the king of all the sequoias, the biggest one. You'd think their roots go very deep, right? No, they're about five feet deep. Shorter than me. They go very wide. They're interlocked with all the other sequoias around them. That's how they stand tall. Brothers, you need friends for your physical health. You need friends for your spiritual health. The only way for you to grow into the full stature that God has intended for you as his son is to be connected with your brothers. I want to tell you a way to be intentional about doing this. Again, this talk is full of practicals. They're all stupidly simple, but if you do them, I promise it'll make your life awesome. I need you, the second you're done watching this video, to write down the names of a few guys and call them and ask, can we check in spiritually once a month? You need brothers who you're spiritually accountable with. Check in and just say, what's God doing in your life and how can I pray for you? Those are the two questions. How are you growing spiritually? How can I pray for you? Do you have that kind of spiritual authenticity where you're honest with your brothers? If you don't, you're like a sequoia that's not attached to other trees. I don't care how big and strong you look, you will fall. And you're setting yourself up for a life that's less happy. This takes some leaning in, some intentionality. If you want the joy of the Lord, you got to give thanks in all circumstances. You got to discipline your mind to stop talking junk to yourself. You need friends. Number four, you need to work out. Guys, listen carefully. This is very powerful. There's a lot of study done theologically about the theology of the body, and people often associate that only with intercourse and with the nuptial meaning of the body. I got to tell you, there's more than that. You are a body-soul composite in the words of St. Thomas Aquinas. There's a connection that's intimate between body and spirit. 
you need to discipline your body and use it in order to, to be open to the joy of the Lord. He hasn't just made you as pure spirit. Sometimes guys get frustrated and it's like, dude, what's going on in your life? Well, I'm praying. I'm doing all these things right. Uh, are you working out? No. And I'm constantly frustrated. Are you exhausted? Have you taken a nap? <laughs> because God's not going to work around the natural. He made the natural. All right. On occasion, he does miracles that, that trump the natural order. But for the most part, he works with it. There was a Harvard study done of people who suffered from depression. They found that overwhelmingly, when they started doing regular cardio fitness, the depression went away. Guys, and they said it was as effective as medication. I'm not against medication. However, pay attention to this study. Especially if you need medication, pay attention to this study. You, you, you have to engage your body in the battle for joy in a disciplined way. Uh, now, there was another study done that found that when they told people about the importance of working out, 0% of the people that they told the importance of working out to started working out more. <laughs> you might be listening to me thinking, Chris, you're telling me something I'm telling myself all the time. And it doesn't help. They took another test group and told them the importance of working out and had them write down when and where. They wrote down when and where they would work out. 91% of them started working out more. So much of having an amazing life comes down to this, guys. Are you doing the practical little things you need to do to, to live that amazing life, to claim it? I want you, when we're done doing this, to write down when and where. Show up and just do something. I don't care if it's just jumping jacks till you're about to pass out. Guys, having the joy of the Lord requires a fight. It's not about changing all the circumstances and things around you. It's about changing you. Start giving thanks and form a habit in your life of giving thanks. Start being aware of the spiritual battle when you start ripping yourself down and lean in and speak truth to yourself. And uplifting words that you need to hear, you speak them to yourself. That's number two. Three, you need to make a discipline of once a month meeting with some brothers and forming spiritual friendship. That you check in when you know each other and you're known by them and you're praying each other for each other and holding each other up and holding each other accountable. Four, you need to work out. These are all simple things, but you need to do them. And number five, this is perhaps the most important from Colossians 3.2. Again, Paul wrote this from prison, in chains, waiting to get his head chopped off. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. Guys, whatever's going on in your life, I'm telling you, man, the first Christians didn't get together and complain about politics all the time. They didn't. And that stuff's important to be aware of. But as important as what Nero was doing was in their day, their minds were set more on what God was doing. Where's your mind set? Is it set on things above or is it set constantly on things of earth? The only way for us to have joy in all circumstances is to see our lives in reference to not the changing circumstances of our day, not the news, not the latest headline, but in light of the good news of Jesus Christ and his love for you. Do you live in constant reference to that? That's the ultimate source of joy, guys. It's living in that relationship, that love relationship with Jesus. That's why I, I want the whole world to practice their Catholic faith more. Not just because I want to see people burdened with religious rules, rituals, regulations that have nothing to do with real life. No, it's because all the things that, that are of Catholicism, the smells, the bells, the incense, the sacraments, going to mass, all these things help us to, to live life to the full, to glorify God by being man fully alive. And by seeing our circumstances, because we're constantly in relation to God, to see all the circumstances of our lives as not the whole picture of our lives, but just a page. Brothers, listen. You, you might be suffering through cancer, but when you know your life in light of the big picture, 
like St. Paul wrote from prison. That cancer is a page, it's not the story of your life. You might have gone through a divorce. That's a page, there's a bigger story. You, you might have gone through a failure and think your whole life, I am a failure. Oh, man, failure's not, not, not a person, it's an event. There's a bigger story. The bigger story is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves you, breathed you into existence, out of love for you, calls you to himself when you wander from sin. He died for you on a cross. He destines you for eternal glory. That's the big picture, the story, the meaning of your life, Christian. When you know that, you can have a spirit that nothing, nothing, nothing brings down. Guys, the world is a mess right now. And I'm not, I'm not giving this talk about joy to tell you to live with rose-colored glasses on. Hmm. No. You need joy. You desperately need joy because the city walls have fallen. And God is summoning you as men to rebuild. He's summoning you to spiritual battle for yourself, for your family, and for the world. And the joy of the Lord must be your strength. God bless you. Men, good morning. I'm Devin Schott. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you at the Columbus Men's Catholic Conference. Guys, why are we here? We're here because we want to make changes in our life. We want to be the heroic, godly, faith-filled men that God is calling us and destining us to be. But that demands change. And that's why we're here, because we want to discover what God is asking us to do, the changes He wants us to make in our lives. And so sometimes in life, we wait for big messiahs to make big changes, especially when we see the world devolving around us. Western Christianity, in a sense, is imploding. The church is on its heels. And I think a lot of times when these type of things happen, we think we need big messiahs who are going to make, make big changes and solve the problem. But that's usually not how God does things. God is looking for the small and the so-called insignificant to make small, micro, incremental changes that actually have big and lasting impact. And so that's why we're here. We need to begin to make those small, micro, incremental changes that are gonna have big, lasting, tremendous effects in our life. You know, if your boat is off trajectory, and just a couple of degrees, it can end up on the wrong continent. But if you alter that rudder just a little bit, just a couple of degrees, you can get back on trajectory and end up on the shore that you desire. You know, in, in the game of golf, if you're having a bad game, you just adjust your grip just a little bit, your stance a little bit, make those micro incremental changes, and you can have a better game. Well, we want to up our spiritual game because we want to arrive at those heavenly shores. We want to bring our family and our friends to those heavenly shores. And so today we're going to be talking about how to make those micro incremental changes. So what I'm asking of you, as I give these talks today, I ask of you to call upon the Holy Spirit to give you that one little thing, that one little change that you need to start working on, that you need to make, that you need to Im implement in your life to become that heroic saint that God's calling you and destining you to be. So as I talk, just pray and ask God to enlighten you, to show you what you need to do, that one little thing. Now, change depends on us knowing God and also us knowing who we are. You know, St. Catherine of Siena said, 
become who you are and you will set the world ablaze. If we become who we are, who we really are, who God has designed us and destined us to be, we can set this world ablaze with His love, His power, and His glory. But most of us are like Jason Bourne. You remember the, the movie Bourne Identity? The, the movie opens up with Jason Bourne floating unconscious in the Mediterranean Sea with multiple gunshot wounds in his back. And when these Italian fishermen, they recover his body and he comes back to consciousness, Jason Bourne realizes that he's suffering from extreme memory loss. He doesn't remember who he is. He doesn't know who he is. And as he begins to try to recover his identity, he undergoes a series of assassination attempts. And he doesn't understand who's hunting him or why he's being hunted because Jason Bourne has forgotten something very fundamental. He's forgotten who he is who his identity is, and he's forgotten that he's a threat to someone else. I think a lot of us are like Jason Bourne. You know, we run around in this world and we wonder why all the trials and the tribulations and the tests and the sufferings, they attack us so often and, and they seem to be particularly designed for us. And hint, it's not because God wants this for you. It's because you have an enemy. It's because you are a threat to the devil. You are a threat to his armies. If if you become who you, were, who you were really called to be. You see, your identification leads to your destination, which is your glorification, which is deification, which is to become partakers in the divine nature, as St. Peter says in Second Peter. We will become like God, as First as John tells us, because when we see God, we will become like Him. That's God's destiny for us. But you see, it, it depends on us really understanding that God has not willed us just to be His slaves. No. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that all things were created by Him. All things were created through Him. And all things were created for Him. What this means is, is that you're not an accident. God purposely created you. There was a point in time, or not in time, in eternity in God's divine mind when he thought of you. And that idea of you brought him so much delight and so much joy that he willed you into existence. And he doesn't just want you to exist. He willed you into existence so you could experience his life, his love, his pleasure, his joy, not only on earth, but for all eternity. You're not an accident. And and not only does He want you to experience His love and His power and all that, but God also wants you to be a messenger. He wants you to be a prophet. He wants you to be someone who actually brings His love to others and leads them from their identity to their destiny. Now, this battle for your identity, though, this is the problem. Most of us are like Jason Bourne. We don't know who we are. We don't know who God has designed us to be. And we don't understand why we're being attacked all the time and what's going on in our lives. Well, it's because you're amidst a tremendous battle, the battle for your identity, because everything, your destiny, depends on you assuming and proclaiming and maintaining your identity. That was Christ's biggest battle. You know, think about this. Threaded throughout the passion narrative, is the question of Jesus' identity. Now, this is important. Jesus is questioned three times during the Passion narrative about his identity. In the garden, the cohort, led by Judas Iscariot, they enter the Garden of Gethsemane and they demand, which one of you is Jesus a Nazarene? And Jesus moves forward. 
He doesn't fall back. He moves forward and he proclaims, I am. Knowing that it will cost him his life, knowing that he's about to be tortured, to be captured, to be stripped and mocked and then beaten and then crucified. And yet he attests to his human identity, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Then before Caiaphas, the high priest, he says, I adjure you, are you the son of the living God? And Jesus says, I am. He attests to his divine nature that he is God. Okay? And what happens? Immediately after he's blindfolded, he's struck, he's pounded, and then he's going to be carted off to Pilate to be scourged. Then before Pilate, Pilate says, are you a king? My kingdom is not of this world. Oh, so you are a king. It is you who say that I am. Jesus attests and proclaims his kingship, knowing, knowing that it's going to cost him his life. Why? Because he has a vocation. His mission, his vocation is to be the savior of the world. He is an identity. He is the son of God the Father. And he, he has come to this earth to do the will of God the Father, which is to save each and every one of us. But it will cost him his life. You see, Jesus, he attests to his human identity, his divine identity, in his kingship. You and I, our battle is similar to that of Christ. We're going to have to proclaim and maintain our identity to this world. Your human identity, you know, your bio biological identity, your DNA, who you've been created to be right there in your flesh. And a lot of us aren't happy about our human identity. You know, I'm, I'm short. I don't particularly relish being short, especially when I'm talking to a group of men who are a lot taller than I am, which usually happens. You know, five foot seven in America, I'm a shrimp, but in Thailand, I'm a giant, you know? But I don't relish talking to a bunch of guys looking up their nostrils. And I relish even less having those guys look down on me. But God must have had a purpose. It wasn't my choice to create me this way. This is how I'm made. This is my human identity. and. And so the, the idea here is, is that this I perceive as a weakness. But God says, in your weakness, my strength is manifest. Notice that Paul, God doesn't say to Paul in, in 1 Corinthians there, he doesn't say, my strength is made manifest in your strength. No, my strength is made manifest in your weakness. A lot of us, we're so ashamed of who we are. We're ashamed of the way we're made, our physicality, our intellect, you know, our emotional you know, person, whoever we are. But that's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to take great delight in ourselves, which will allow us to delight in God. We've got to stand behind our human identity. And when we begin to accept who we really are, then God's power will be manifest through us. But we also have to, in a sense, proclaim our divine nature, if you will. Not that we're God, we're not. But through baptism, the Holy Spirit has knit himself to our soul. So God lives in us. That's what St. Paul says in Corinthians. Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Most of us, we don't even realize that the power of God dwells in us, but the power of God dwells in you richly. God wants you to be a manifestation, a revelation of His glory. But the devil, he wants you to cover up that manifestation, that revelation of God's glory. Why? Because you are connected to many other people, perhaps your wife, children, friends, family members, co-workers. 
And if the devil can take you out and get you to cover up being that manifestation, that revelation of God's glory, all those people around you don't get to experience God through you. And see, here's the deal. God wants to reveal a certain aspect of himself that no other human being ever will. And so if the devil can take you out, or if he can sideline you, or if he can distract you, or if he can make you his accomplice, all those people that would have encountered that attribute or that part of God that only you can give, they never encounter it. That's how important you are. So we proclaim our human nature, our divine nature, and think about this. When you're out at a restaurant, do you make the sign of the cross and pray in public? When you're at work, do you have sacred pictures in your office? A lot of us, we're afraid because we know it's going to cost us. A lot of us are afraid to speak up for our faith because we know it's going to cost us. It costs Jesus everything. It will cost us everything. But Jesus won everything. And we can win everything too. But not only that, we're called to maintain and proclaim our kingly identity. You see, each and every one of us is called to be masters of our domain, especially ourselves. And that dominion, in, in Hebrew, that word is rada, which means to reign or to prevail against. God has given us the power to actually rule, to reign over ourselves, to proclaim, in a sense, or to maintain, or to have our own dominion. But that means that we've got to be masters of ourselves. You can't be master of your domain if you're not master of yourself. You've got to master your passions in order to, in a sense, be master of your domain. So important. So, if we want to be a man of glory, a man of faith, a man who basically discovers his identity, becomes who he is so he can set the world ablaze, there's one key attribute that that man needs, that you and I need, and it's faith. We need to have faith. As Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, what am I talking about here? Faith, this idea of total abandonment and trust in God. Imagine yourself in a building that's on fire, and you run up to the second floor. The first floor is burning. Then the second floor is catching on fire. So you run up to the third floor. Finally, you get to the seventh floor. And the whole building is about to catch on fire. And you get to the top of this building. And you look out. And the EMTs and the firemen, they've spread out a net. And they're calling you to jump into it. Now, you've got to trust. You've got to have faith in those men that they're going to catch you. Or else you're going to go down with the building. And I think that's a lot of us. A lot of us are going down in our own personal sin, in our own pragmatic way of doing things. We don't trust in God. I've got it. I can handle it myself. But God's calling each and every one of us to jump off of our self-reliance and to jump into His arms and to trust Him and to do what He's calling us to do, to become men of faith. Now, faith is easy when everything's going good. But faith is incredibly challenging when there's a crisis. You know, they say that faith cannot be proven without a crisis. And a crisis cannot be endured without faith. And that Greek word for crisis means test or challenge. 
Every single one of us will undergo tremendous suffering in our lives. We'll undergo tests and tribulations and trials. It's unavoidable. Back in the year 2000, my third daughter, Anna Marie, was born at 28 weeks, prema- 28 pre- weeks premature. She was born basically at six months. She was small, very tiny. Her head was like the size of a small apple. And um, she spent a month in the neonatal intensive care unit. They helped her lungs and her digestive system function. And then she came home. We had our normal little baby Anna Marie, and it was wonderful. But within five days, she contracted RSV, which is a virus which attacks premature infants' lungs. So we took her back to the hospital, but she had to be admitted to the pediatric unit. And they had no experience of working with a baby that small. And the long story short, through 10 hours of apnea, um, nurse neglect, by the time the medevac team got on life support and flew her out to a children's hospital two hours away, she suffered three clinical death experiences and permanent brain injury. And today she's trapped inside of her body and lives from a wheelchair. And we do everything for her. And then shortly after that, I, well, during that time, while she was hospitalized, I told my employer that I needed to take a long, long time off because I didn't know what was happening with our family. My wife suffered a nervous breakdown. I was spending almost all my time at the hospital, literally sleeping at the hospital. And, you know, just watching my daughter fight for her life. And so he's, he said, Devin, if this company comes down to one person, it would be you. Don't worry about it. We're paying you. Well, meanwhile, they sold the company while I was gone. And they looked at the payroll and said, why isn't this guy here? And I came back to be laid off. And then after that, shortly after that, I was diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. And it looked like I was going to die. I was having a bad day. And, And you begin to wonder, you know, why does God allow this? You know, why this misery? Is it, is he against us? Does he take great delight in making our lives miserable? Does he want us to suffer? No. I think that there's a deeper truth that if we embrace and engage, it can actually help us to become heroic men of glory. But first of all, we have to understand this. God does not cause suffering. Okay, this is so important. We have to understand this. God doesn't create suffering. Sin causes suffering. And all sin is, is sin is when something good is separated from its rightful end. Okay, so for example, water. Water is intended to hydrate a person. Okay, so that's the good of water. The intended end or goal is to hydrate a person. But if you separate those two things and I inhale the water... I drown, okay? And that's what sin does. Sin separates a good from its goal, its end, and then chaos ensues, okay? So God does not cause suffering or create suffering, but what sin causes suffering, okay? Sin causes death. But what God is an expert at, He's an expert at allocating and appropriating suffering in our lives to bring about the greatest good, to make us men of faith. Because what happens when suffering occurs? We're challenged. We're experiencing a trial and a test. And guess what? That's when faith is demanded. And so what happens when people you know, enter suffering usually? They give up on God. They blame it on God. But see, as James tells us, chapter 1, it's four Ps. Your pain in your life is there to help you learn to be patient. And that patience that you learn allows you to be persevering. 
And that perseverance allows you to become perfect, lacking in nothing. That's what James says. And so when we're experiencing a trial, a test, we experience emotional, physical, intellectual pain that just rivets us. It, it, just, it just cuts to us. But God's saying, be patient. And that word patient in the Greek is hupomene. And mene means to remain and hupo under. Remain under the trial. Trust me. Persevere. Have that fortitude. And that's what makes a man. And such a man learns to heroically sacrifice and he becomes perfect self-giving love. And he is capable of leading other people to glory. It's like balloons. God wants to to stretch us, so to speak. You know, if you take a balloon, you look at a balloon, without air, it's just lifeless. It just lays there. But once you begin to breathe air into that balloon, it begins to stretch. And if that balloon had a personality, it would tell you that it hurt. Well, we're a lot like those balloons. Without the breath of the Holy Spirit, without us being stretched, we can't soar. And so God, He tends to breathe in His life into us. But a lot of times that causes us to suffer. It causes us to stretch. But once we have enough of the Holy Spirit in us, then we can soar the heavens. We can lead others to soar the heavens. So here's the situation here. How do we become men of faith? How do we allow God to breathe His Holy Spirit into it? How do we come to embrace this identity of who God has designed and destined us to be? How do we come to know that person that we are? We have to embrace silence. In silence, God speaks. Without sound, His voice is heard. Silence is a great treasure because that is where we are able to discern God's direction for our lives. St. John of the Cross tells us that God's first language is silence. And so if we want to know God, if we want to know His mission, His vision, His plan for our lives, We've got to enter the silence. We've got to listen to Him. We've got to begin to discern what He's telling us. And really, the only way is by entering silence. As Psalm, I think, 39 verse 6 says, Holocausts and sacrifices you desire not, but an open ear. God desires for us to be listening to Him. But so few of us listen to God or, or even brave enough to listen to God. And the reason is, I think it's twofold. I think we're too busy. B-U-S-Y, burdened under Satan's yoke. We're, we're chasing after the dreams and the vain ambitions and we just don't have time to pray. You know, the other reason I think is because, you know, I think all of us want to be strong or perceived as strong, but I think a lot of us are very weak. And the reason I say that is because I think we're afraid to enter the silence. I think we're afraid that we're not going to hear God's voice, that God isn't going to show up. Or maybe we're just afraid of facing ourselves and having to change our lives because we know that there are things in our lives that we need to change. I think we want to be conquerors, but we're really afraid of conquering ourselves. You know, I, you know, there's so many of us who are warriors instead of warriors. And, and so God wants us to be warriors of divine love, but it demands that we enter the silence. So few of us enter the silence because we're afraid of it. Why are there so few leaders? Why are there so few men who are capable of leading people to eternal life? Why are there so few heroic men that are willing to sacrifice themselves for others? Why are there so few men who are willing to proclaim the truth? 
Why are there so few shepherds who actually lay down their life rather than being hirelings? Because they're not brave enough to enter the silence to be with God daily, setting aside time daily, periodically throughout the day to be with God. You know, I think that it's, it's super important that we understand where our power comes from. You know, years ago, uh, a computer tech, he installed a backup drive on my stationary computer, the, the software and everything, the whole nine yards. And after a while, I noticed, about a, after a week, I would notice that my data wasn't backing up. And so I called him up and I asked him what was going on and he ran me through a series of rev- resolutions and nothing was working. And so finally he said, Devin, just check to see if the backup drive is plugged in, you know, powered, if it's empowered if it's to the plug into the wall. And I was like, of course it's plugged in. He said, just check. Well, it wasn't plugged in, you know, and I think it's a lot like that with us. You know, that backup drive was brand new. It was perfectly designed to do what it was supposed to do, but it wasn't plugged into its power source. And like us, God has perfectly designed us to do what we're called to do to become great, heroic, faith-filled sons of God, because that's our identity. But we're not connected to the power source, which is God, by the power cord, which is prayer. I mean, think about this for just a minute. There are 328 million citizens in the United States, and 70 million of those are Catholic. I think that's right around 21%. And of those 70 million Catholics, 14 million, like 22% of them, go to Mass on Sunday, once a week, go to Mass. These would be what we call good Catholics. (laughs) Okay, now among those 14 million Catholics, 61% female, 39% male. So that's some 5.7 million Catholic males attend Mass on Sunday. Now Matthew Kristoff from the New Evangelization says that one-third of devoted Catholic men pray daily. Now, if we were to say that those 5.7 million Catholic men were devoted, which would be a stretch, that's about 1.7 million, 1.9 million Catholic men out of the 328 million people in America. That's 0.005%. It's, it's almost nothing. It, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's like Abraham. I think about Abraham. You know, Abraham says, Lord, for the sake of the ten, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? For the sake of the ten, I'll spare them. For the sake of the 0.005%, I will spare them. You know, it's like the movie 300. There were 300 Spartans that took on hundred, hundreds of thousands of Persian soldiers, and they were winning until a Spartan betrayed them. But that's like us. We're the Spartans. If we're the one-third of devoted Catholic men who are praying daily, we're tapping into the power source to become those Catholic Navy SEALs, those real men of God. And this is where we discover God's mission, His vision, His plan for for glory. So how do we become the Spartans of our age? How do we become those Catholic Navy SEALs? Well, I'm going to give you three practical tips to embrace the silence and become true men of God. And I'm telling you right now, this is by far, besides lust, one of the biggest things that men wrestle with. So these are, these are like little uh, tips that are so essential. The first one is this. Schedule your day around God rather than God around your day. A lot of times we just give God the leftovers. And I'm telling you, God doesn't like leftovers, okay? It's like Cain and Abel. You know, 
Cain gave God his leftovers. He didn't give him God his first fruits. And so God wasn't pleased with Cain, but God was pleased with Abel and took delight in him because Abel gave him his best, his first fruits. And so we want to give God the first fruits of our time. And so we need to schedule our day around God rather than God around our day. And so how do we do this? First, we need to figure out how many hours of sleep we need, eight, seven, six, five, whatever it is, and establish that. Identify your go to bed time and your rise time and always keep them consistent. Then with your waking hours, identify your three prayer times throughout the day. And then the third thing is stick to that. You know, if you had an appointment with a businessman who was going to give you an account that was going to make you millions of dollars, you wouldn't miss that meeting. But God is the giver of all good gifts. He gives us gifts beyond millions of dollars, okay? And he wants us to meet with him daily so that his power can be unlocked in our life. And so the third thing is we just need to do it, okay? So we need to schedule our day around God rather than God around our day. The second thing is we need to have a sacred space, a place that we meet with God because life is chaotic. You know, we got the paperwork, we got the technology with the computers, and we got the laundry and the kids and the messes. And to pray in an environment like that is extremely difficult. What Moses did with the Israelites is he made a tent of meeting outside of the camp, outside of the chaos of the Israelite life. And that was where Moses and Joshua and the Israelites would go to receive consultation from the Lord. You and I, we need to establish attentive meeting. That's what this is in my background here. This is my personal chapel, my tent of meeting. I go there to find God in here. This is my personal pilgrimage that I make several times in a day so that I can tap into that power source, which is God. So we need to set up that sacred space in our home. We need to put sacred images in it, lay out a Bible, the Roman Missal, and, and we need to just make that our sacred place our place of prayer. Tie the p- a piece of your house, what, it, even if it's a closet, to God. Now, we need to know what we're supposed to do when we're in our attentive meeting and when we're praying. And a little thing I like to do is called the seven R's of prayer. And so the first R is that we need to recognize God's presence in us and outside of us. And so it could be as simple as just pausing, taking the time out and making the sign of the cross slowly and acknowledging that God is present, present in us, present outside of us. I, I love using my body because it demonstrates what I believe. So I, I prostrate myself. I acknowledge that I'm prostrating myself before God. You know, so first we recognize God's presence. The second is that every conversation has a context. So we read. We read like the sacred scripture. Jesus says, learn from me, especially from the Gospels. So we read the scripture or a saint's writing or maybe some, you know, divine liturgy of the hours or something that's going to launch us into conversation with God. And what I like to do is I like to read until I come across a passage or a word that speaks to me. And I feel like God is saying something to me. And then I stop and I reflect. That's the third R. I reflect on what God is saying to me. And then the fourth R is I respond. I I talk to God about the, the difficulties in my life, my aspirations, my goals, my desires. I beg Him to grant success to the work of my hands. But I, I, I reflect and then I respond to God. And then after that, the fifth R, which is extremely important, is rest. I think for us busy guys, we're doers, we're solution-based, we're goal-oriented. We don't like resting. 
but in prayer it's essential. And if Jesus Christ is the divine heart surgeon, can you imagine if you were going in for heart surgery and you weren't knocked out and you're trying to tell the doctor what to do? That surgery isn't going to go very well. But we need to just rest and allow Jesus Christ, the divine heart surgeon, to heal us. And, and you know, we may not perceive anything is happening right there, but over time it's incredible the change that happens. We become more like Him. And then the sixth R is we need to make a resolution. God, today I'm not going to use the porn. Uh, today I'm going to give my wife one act of affirmation. I'm going to tell her that she's beautiful. I'm going to take my daughter out for a day. I'm going to stop swearing. Whatever it is, I'm not going to cheat at work. I'm not going to steal. Whatever it is, we make that resolution. And then the seventh R is we remember that resolution throughout the day. These are the seven R's of prayer. So we need to schedule our day around God rather than God around our day. We need to have a sacred place, our tent of meeting, which we meet with God. And then we need to have that conversation, that rich conversation with God and rest in God with our seven R's of prayer. Now, St. Joseph. Talk about a guy who entered the silence and discovered his mission, his identity. Joseph was amidst a great trial, a test, and here he had to exercise great faith. He actually entered the silence after discovering Mary pregnant without his cooperation. And that word for that describes what he did was ponder, but the Greek word is entomeme, which means that he was, it's from the word thumos, which is this deep spiritedness, but it means that he was literally grieving over the situation because he loved Mary. And, and yet he had to separate himself from her. Now, Joseph enters the silence. And as he's praying, what happens? God reveals to him through the angel his identity and his mission. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. God reveals his identity. Joseph, you are a son of David. You're an underground king, a hidden king. You're, that means you're a son of mine. And you're a husband of the Blessed Mother. Now go take her as your wife and become a father to the Son of God. God revealed to Joseph in the silence his identity and mission. But one of my favorite stories is the story of Jacob, the Old Testament patriarch. You guys probably know the story of Jacob, the son of Isaac. He was a twin brother, the younger twin brother of Esau. When Jacob and Esau were born, Esau came out first. But Jacob grabbed on to Esau's heel. And therefore, his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, they named him Jacob, which means usurper or stealer, if you will, or beguiler, trickery. And as Jacob and Esau grew older, Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright when Esau was famished and he was hungry and he, from hunting and he hadn't caught anything. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright and I'll give you a bowl of lentil soup. And so he did. Now, when Isaac was growing old, he told Esau, his firstborn, he said, go catch me some of that game, which I love, and I'll give you the blessing of the patriarchs of my father Abraham. Well, Esau went out to hunt. Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, hears this. So she dresses up Jacob with like the skins of a goat, I believe, to cover him up to make him hairy so he's hairy like Esau. And then he goes in with this game that Rebekah prepared. And Esau usurps, or Jacob usurps Esau and steals the fatherly blessing, the blessing of the patriarchs from Isaac. But when Esau finds out, he's enraged, and he vows to kill Jacob. And so therefore, Rebekah tells, 
or yeah, Rebecca tells Jacob he needs to flee to her brother's house, Laban, where he meets Rachel and he falls in love with her. And he makes a deal with Laban that he'll work seven years for Rachel because he loves her. And the seven years seem like a week. And then on the wedding night, they all drink and it's time for him to go into the tent and be with Rachel. And he wakes up in the morning and he was with Leah, the older sister, that he didn't find very attractive. And so then he works another, he was beguiled, you get it? Usurped, he was tricked, just like he tricked his father. And then he works another seven years for Rachel and he gets her. And then he works another six years for Laban on top of it. And Laban is abusing him. And finally, in the silence, God tells Jacob that he needs to return back to his father's land. What this means to Jacob is that it's a sure death. Esau is going to kill him. But nevertheless, Jacob agrees. And he begins the trip home. His two wives, his concubines, his children, and all of his flocks. He's a very rich man. And there's a night right before the day that he's going to meet Esau. And Jacob slips away from his family in the dark of the night, in the silence, to be with God, to pray. It's a mini retreat. And we know what happens. He begins wrestling with this man of God. They say it's the Lord or the angel of the Lord. And he's wrestling with this man of God. And it says it was wrestling throughout the night. And finally, this angel says to Jacob, what's your name? Now, this is the moment. Jacob hangs his head low because it's like a confession. He has to admit who he is. I'm Jacob. I'm usurper. I'm liar. I'm a stealer. He confesses. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. And the angel says, no, you're no longer Jacob, usurper. You're Israel, one who is striven with God and men and come out victorious. And you see, Jacob wasn't wrestling like against God. He could never win that battle. Jacob was wrestling with God against himself, against his past. And guess what? He discovered in that prayer his identity, his mission. He's Israel, one who's striven with God and men and become victorious. You and I, we've got to enter that dark night of prayer before God and wrestle with our past. I remember when Anna Marie, my daughter, is, uh, you know, suffering on life support. And then we found out she suffered, you know, basically permanent brain injury. And then she was confined to a wheelchair. And when they were rolling Anna Marie across the tarmac to get her on the medevac helicopter to fly her out to the children's hospital, the head nurse admitted that it was their fault. Not that never happens. And my wife's sister, who was married to a multimillionaire at the time, said, Devin, We'll pay for the lawsuit to file a lawsuit against the hospital. No problem. But the more that I thought about filing that lawsuit against these people for stealing my daughter, they took my daughter away from me, the more I slipped into a spiritual darkness of resentment and bitterness. And finally, in a moment of desperation, I I called out to God and I, I wanted Him to deliver me from this depression. And the words came to me, forgive them. And I was like, forgive who? Forgive the nurses? No way. I'm not doing it. And so I kept slipping into this spiritual darkness. And so then one day, in in a true moment of desperation, I called the head nurse, I explained who I was, and I said, I forgive you of your debt. I forgive you for what you did to my daughter. It was very interesting. Not only did I begin to choose Anna Marie to be the daughter that God intended for me and to receive her, but... I had to accept my own fatherhood, my own role in life, 
to accept who God was calling me to be, which I really didn't want to be. And so that's what happens in prayer. In the silence, God wants to reveal His identity for you. Your identity, who you are, and your great mission, which we'll talk about in the next talk. But the key here is this. It's in silence that God speaks. He wants to reveal to you your mission, your identity, your call to greatness. Become who you are, who you really are, and you'll set the world ablaze.